theyeshiva.net. Thank you for unmuting me. That was helpful. Because in the sense that through Zoom, sometimes you could see, but if you're not unmuted, nobody can hear you, which sometimes we prefer it that way, especially when you're at board meetings and office meetings. It's good to see without hearing. But in this case, I assume that Shmia is part of the experience. So yes, according to our plans, Rabbi Smachshavis Belevish, Rabbi Einhorn asked me last year already after Slichis to be able to schedule the eve of Tavshin Peyalov to come back to the amazing community of Los Angeles and the incredible community of Yavna. And I was looking forward to it. But Vatsas Hashem, he succum, that we're still together, socially distant, but spiritually, emotionally, Jewishly, and intellectually completely unified and integrated. So thank you, my dear friend and colleague, Rabbi Einhorn Schlitter, for your very kind words and uh, introductory remarks. Thank you to the Rubin family. Thank you to uh, all of the Yavna community for extending this invitation and for the privilege to be able to address you, all those who are part of Yavna, all those who are part of Los Angeles, and anyone who's joining us, really, wherever you are around the world. By us here in the New York area, it's already closer to Tikkun Chatzois, I know for some of you it's earlier in the evening, and I know for some in the Holy Land it's already uh, time for Vosikin. Uh, so, Bruchim Haboyim to our brothers and sisters, wherever you are, and thank you so, so much to Yavna. We are bidding farewell to a year that we will not forget, certainly during our lifetimes and perhaps many lifetimes. A year that, as the rabbi just said, was dramatically eventful, a year that was challenging, to put it mildly. Many of us have lost loved ones, dear friends, teachers, neighbors, relatives. Some of us have struggled severely with COVID-19. And everybody was affected in one way or another, financially, spiritually, emotionally, socially, health-wise, everyone young and old, each in their own way, not a sector in society has not been affected. 7.7 billion people were brought to their knees as a result of a virus the size of 125 nanometers. We now say goodbye to a very intense and loaded year, and we welcome a new year, 5781, Tavshin Peyalef, as the Chsam Seifer says, may Ashpais Yarim Evia in Tavshin Peyalov May Ashpais. From the dumps, he uplifts the destitute. Lahishivi im Nedivim im Nedive Yama im Lahishivi Akeres Habayis Emabonim Semecha Halaluka. So, as we welcome a new year, a year of Tavshin Peyalov, bidding farewell, it's a time of reckoning. Always the days before Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are a time of Cheshbon, introspection, reckoning of the soul. And this year, the whole world is going through a reckoning of sorts because the fact is that in the last six, seven months, as we all were forced to retreat, everyone in their own way, Jew and Gentile, young and old, woman and man, every nationality, every culture, religion, faith, nation, was forced on some level to make a reckoning. What we do now on a regular basis called Cheshben HaNefesh, 
is really the fate of the world, any intelligent, introspective, sincere human being, has been making these reckonings, these cheshboin hasanefesh, and asking themselves questions like, what are my priorities? How do I deal with moments of crisis? What really matters in life? What can I live without? What can't I live without? Whenever distractions are eliminated from our lives, the silver lining is that we get to live deeper and love deeper. There is also a lot of fear. There is fear and stress and anxiety. Somebody said, worrying is like a rocking chair. You ever sit in a rocking chair? It keeps you busy, but it gets you nowhere. But we worry. In my communication with communities the world over, and over the last month since Purim, when I stopped traveling, like all of us, I did hundreds and hundreds, literally hundreds of Zoom chats and shiurim and lectures and seminars with demographics all over the world. And there was a common denominator. I saw a lot of fear. I'm seeing a lot of fear, a lot of pachad, a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety. So I would like to address today, tonight with you during these slichas days, zoichalim v'royadim miyoyim bayacha. Hashem lonu in the language of Slichis. Hanashamalach Vahaguf Paalach. Khusa Lamalach Hanashamalach Vahaguf Shalach Haselaman Shmach. I want to address a few seminal points that help me, inspire me, empower me, and I think can also perhaps help and inspire and empower all of you. First, I begin with an interesting question. It seems like a nuanced question but it's anything but that. The Rambam, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Maimon, is called the great eagle, Mimoshe v'ad Moshe lekam Moshe. He formulated in his Mishnah Torah, Sefer Ahmad, the Hilchis Tshuva, the Ramban, in a famous letter, extols the fact that the Rambam managed to create the first cohesive, integrated treatise, Chibur, on Tshuva. This was in a letter that he wrote to French rabbis were very critical of the Rambam's Sefer Hamada because of certain statements that he wrote, especially in Hilchus Tshuva. And they were so critical, there were even the voices that wanted to conceal and bury Sefer Hamada, which brought to very negative results. Ultimately, the Christian church in France would burn the Rambam's Marian of Uchim and his Sefer Hamada because of accusations that began by great rabbis, including people like Rabbeinu Yoyne, the Rameh, Rabbeinu Meir Halevi Abu Lefiya, some of the great Rishonim, who were extremely suspicious that the Rambam's works are filled with ideas that are dangerous for the Jewish mind. And let me tell you, one of, in my mind, one of the greatest lessons in piety, Rabbeinu Yoyne, Rabbeinu Yoyne of Spain, who was one of the extraordinary figures of his day and was one of the greatest ideological opponents of the Rambam. But when he realized a few decades after the Rambam's death in the 1200s that the church burnt the Rambam's works, Rabbeinu Yoyne writes, and this is recorded in a, Rabbeinu Yoyne realized how far he went, and this is recorded in a letter of a student, Rabbi Hillel, a student of Rabbeinu Yoyne, and he asked himself how he can do tshuva. And because of this, at least according to many opinions, he wrote the classic Shari Tshuva of Rabbeinu Yoyna. 
One of the most classic works of Musar is Shari Tshuva of Rabbeinu Yoyin of Rabbeinu Yoyin of Spain, who wrote Shari Tshuva, the portals of Tshuva, which is a seminal work on repentance. But why did he do it? He did it because of his own Tshuva process for how he accused the Rambam in writing things that were inappropriate. And this teaches you something so profound. In life, don't be perfect, but be accountable. Here is a man, one of the greatest sages of the time, when he realized he made an error, he didn't only say, I'm sorry. He wrote a whole work that studied till today. He put his soul into it. How to do tshuva, how to repent, as a way of himself doing tshuva. So the Ramban, in his letter to the French rabbis, extols the Rambam. And he says, here's a man who knew about tshuva, who knew how to do tshuva. What is tshuva? The ideas of tshuva are scattered all over in Tanakh and all over in Gemara. There's a sugi mesechta yuma, there's a sugi mesechta tainis, there's sugis everywhere in Shas about tshuva here, tshuva there. And he took it and he made a comprehensive program, what tshuva is, what the mitzvah of tshuva is, how to do tshuva, the details of tshuva, when to do tshuva, what prevents you from tshuva, etc. Ten chapters of Ilchis tshuva. In the fifth chapter, the fifth and the sixth chapter, the Rambam dedicated to the theme of Pchira, a free choice. The Rambam says that Pchira, the idea that a person has choice, is Amud HaTorah mitzvah. It's the pillar of Yiddishkeit. Because if a person doesn't have free choice, then how can there be laws? How can you give, how can Hashem give me laws and tell me to do this and not to do this? This is right, this is wrong. I have no free choice. Everything is predetermined. We're just robots. We think we have free choice, but we don't. And the Rambam says, what point is there for reward and punishment, schar and oinish? Are you going to reward a tzaddik? You're going to punish a rasha? Well, there's no choice. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. So the Rambam says the foundation of Judaism is that even though we're born with proclivities and even though there are what we call genetics and even though there's nature and even though there's nurture, and sometimes my struggle may be very different than your struggle. At the end, and everybody's freedom is expressed elsewhere. The famous essay by Rav Elio, the Micht of Melio, Rav Dessler. Everybody's struggle, everybody's Nekudos Abchira may be elsewhere, but ultimately in life, you are the author of your own biography. So there are commentators who ask a very interesting question. Why does the Rambam put the laws of free choice in Hilchis Tshuva? If it's the pillar of Torah and Mitzvah, you should have put it into Hilchis Yisaitiyah Torah, where he discusses the fundamentals of Judaism. Why does he put it into the laws of repentance? Free choice is relevant to all of Judaism. He says it's the pillar of all Yiddishkeit. Why does he feel the need to put it into Hilchis Tshuva? So there's a beautiful answer I saw in the, in the, in the Musr, in the Musr Shmuz of Rav Kotler, the Rosh Yeshiva of uh, Beis Medrash Gavoya of Lakewood, but that's not for tonight. It's a whole, uh, you could look up Rav Shnei Kutler's explanation. I want to share with you another explanation that I heard from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, why the Rambam put Pchira into Hilchis Tshuva. It's a little bit of a uh, brisker or lumdish explanation, but it has tremendous psychological and emotional and spiritual power. And he said as follows, he said, every mitzvah has its own definition. There's blowing, the hearing shofar and reading Megillah. There's putting on tefillin and there's learning Torah. There's davening and there's saying shema. There's giving tzedakah 
excuse me, and there's shaking a lulav. There's sitting in a sukkah, and there's eating matzah. There's putting a mezuzah on your door, and there's putting on sitzahs, and they're celebrating Shabbos or celebrating Yom Tov. Every mitzvah has its unique definition, its unique gather. Free choice is not the description of the mitzvah. Free choice is what allows us to be rewarded for the mitzvah, or what allows us to be punished if we don't do the mitzvah. Free choice just makes the mitzvah autonomous. In other words, the mitzvah was done volitionally. I get credit for it. Free choice is not the heft of the mitzvah. Free choice means that I was not compelled to do it. I had a choice and therefore I deserve credit when I did the mitzvah or when I abstained from the aver. Tshuva is much different than that. Tshuva, the Rebbe said, it's not that pchira allows the tshuva to be volitional. Pchira is the definition of tshuva. The chefza, the very core and identity of tshuva, what is tshuva? Tshuva means, tshuva's very foundation, the very essence and entity of the mitzvah of tshuva is that I have choices in life. Because what does tshuva mean? Tshuva means that there is remorse. I feel bad. If I have no choices, why is there remorse? Tshuva means I can change my future. If I have no choice, how can I change my future? Tshuva means I can transform the destiny of my life. Tshuva means, as the Rambam says, I regret the past. I create a new future. I apologize and I take responsibility. How can I be accountable? How can I take responsibility if there's no choice? So Pchira is the very oxygen, the very essence of tshuva. It means basically that I have the power and the potential to be the master of my life. That is the very definition of tshuva. So the Rambam puts in Pchira into tshuva. There's an incredible interpretation. I saw the Yisaid HaVaydir, a Baruch of Kosov. He says, the Navi says, the, Yirmi, the Navi Yirmiya, the Navi of destruction says, in the name of Hashem, he says, You abandoned me, but you kept my Torah. So the Yerushalmi, the Talmud says, that the Rebbeinu Shalom was telling Yirmiya to tell the Jews, You would have abandoned me, and you would have kept my Torah. I wish. The question is, what does this mean? Hashem is saying, I wish you would have neglected me, you would have thrown me under the bus and kept my Torah. What does this really mean? So Rabbi Baruch of Kosov gives a very interesting interpretation. He says, in Judaism, there is a paradox, which the Rambam himself poses in Hilchus Truva chapter 5 at the end. It's the paradox known as Yidia versus Pchira. Yidia means we believe that God knows everything. An infinite, omniscient, omnipresent God knows the entire future even before it happens. Pchira means that I have choices. I ultimately have the power to choose what I'm going to do today and tomorrow. But the two are mutually exclusive. To quote Maimonides, if God knows what I'm going to do tomorrow and God's knowledge is flawless and impeccable and perfect, then I don't have a choice because tomorrow I'm forced to follow the trajectory, the path that God knew about yesterday. And if you could say that I can surprise God, I could disprove God, God said, I'm going to do, God thought I'll do this tomorrow. But really, I have a choice. It's in my hands. It's not in his hands. Then it means God's knowledge 
is flawed. God's knowledge is blemished. God's knowledge is incomplete. So the Rambam says, how do you reconcile the two? And he struggles with it. And the Ravid struggles with the Rambam. And all the commentators struggle with the Rambam's answer and the Ravid's answer. Until today, it's one of the liveliest conversations in Jewish philosophy and in philosophy in general. How do we reconcile God's knowledge and our choice? So the Yisaydeh Baruch of Kosov says, this is what the Navi Yermiya means. You know, it says in Perkei Rabbi Kiva says, Hakol Tzafuy, Barishus Nesuna. Everything is seen, Hashem knows everything, but you still have the power to decide. How? Paradox. So in quantum mechanics, we can tolerate paradoxes, but for many generations, paradoxes was considered nimnois. It's We don't go there. So he says, this is what the Navi says, for a person to believe in free choice, sometimes he says, you know what? It means God doesn't know everything. Because if he knows, then I don't have choice. If he doesn't know, then I can have choice. So Hashem says, if you have to make a choice between embracing the faith that I know everything and embracing your power to make choices, if you have to get rid of, if you have to cut out one notion, so basically I'm telling you, Leave go of me. Say that I don't know everything. Compromise my infinity. But v'seirasi shamaro. Do not allow yourselves to stop believing in your choice. Which if you want to use different words, what he's basically saying, God is saying as follows. It's important for you to believe in me. It's important for you to believe in my infinity. But it may even be more important for you to know how much I believe in you. Or to quote the Tzadik HaKoyen of Lublin in Sitka Satzadik, I think Eis Kuf Nun Dalet, Kishem Sheh Adam Tzarech Lahamen Ba'ashem Yizbarech, Kach Acher Kach Tzarech Lahamen Ba'atzmai. A person has to believe in Hashem, but equally important is that you have to believe in yourself. And here the Navi says, and you have to choose between the two, don't give up on the idea that God believes in you, in your power, in your ability, in your choices, to quote the Gemara in Shabbos, Kufyates, Shutef la Kadesh Baruch Hu You're a partner. You're a co-creator of the destiny of the world. So when you look at life and you say, eh, everything is predicted, we all know it's all genes, 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 it's all gen- gen- nature, nurture, there's no choice. He says, If you can't figure out how I know everything, okay, leave go of that faith. But never, ever, think for a moment, that I stopped believing in you. I stopped believing in your resources, in your ability, in your potential, in your power to recreate yourself. I know of no religion or philosophy that has conferred so much dignity and responsibility and potential on the human soul. Believing in our infinite power to confront our past and to transform it into a brighter future. I may not be able to get rid of everything that I have experienced in the past, but as the Gemara says in Yumadaf Pevav, real tshuva is dainos nasolai kizachias. It's I take the traumas and I learn from them and I metamorphosize them. They become catalysts and springboards of awareness of a new and brighter and more powerful future. 
in this context, let's now go to step two. And that is, Rosh Hashanah is called Yom Hadin, the day of judgment. And the truth is, people have a very hard time with it. What does it mean, a day of judgment? It conjures in many people a lot of fear and stress and dread and anxiety. As people have told me, and you'll forgive me, but people have told me, you know, this day of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, it frightens me. It's like this big, strong God is waiting to find my sins and mistakes so that He could punish me. The whole concept of judging me and prove that I'm not good, I'm wicked, and therefore the decrees are going to be very negative. We read Unasana Toikaf on Rosh Hashanah, and there's a sense of very deep fear that descends upon a lot of people. And I think it's extremely important to address this, especially in this year, when there is a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety that all of us are facing. What does it mean, Yom Haddin, a day of judgment? What is judgment? Let's say the truth. Do we like to be judged or do we hate to be judged? In America today, we don't like to be judged. We live in an age of individualism. Who are you to judge me? I'll define my own life based on my dreams and my passions and my instincts and my cravings. And don't judge anybody. Judgmentalism is seen as an evil word, as a very negative word. It's narrow, it's primitive, it's archaic. It comes from insecurity. It comes from your phobias. Don't impose your phobias on me. In the West Coast especially, the the state that's free from judgmentalism. (laughs) The West Coast prides itself on the fact, let each march to their own beat. Let everybody dance according to their own rhythm. Stop judging people. And really the Mishnah says, But I want to argue tonight, my dearest brothers and sisters, that it's not so simple. I believe, and I think you'll agree with me, that deep down, We want to be judged. Every one of us wants to be judged. What does it mean to be judged? Wouldn't it be refreshing if somebody can sit down with me, look me in my eyes, and put my soul under a microscope and show me everything that is really going on in my life and judge me and show me what is behind my motives, behind my thoughts, behind my thoughts, my words, my actions, what makes me tick? What are my real ambitions, goals, and dreams? What am I scared of? What are my insecurities? What are my fears? What causes me anxiety? What are my rosebuds? What are my subconscious inner drives? Which healthy, functional, introspective, intelligent person does not want to be judged? Who doesn't want to have a relationship with somebody who can be brutally honest with you and really help you Strip yourself from your facades and your layers and your masks. I know we're wearing masks, but emotionally, help me strip, strip, help strip me from my masks and really zoom in and give me a laser x-ray, an inner x-ray or a CAT scan, not only of my physical brain, but of the internal forces in the brain, in the psyche, in the soul. It's the most refreshing, creative, promising perspective. If I were to come to you, you would come to me and say, Rabbi, why, why? I'm going to have you sit down with somebody who will put your soul under a microscope and will judge everything. Of course, it's scary. It's not comfortable. Part of me says, no, 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 no. But 
the real me, the real you, we welcome this. Who doesn't want honesty? Who doesn't want integrity? Who doesn't want to see everything? Who doesn't want to be able to stand in front of a mirror that reflects back not only who I am, but also who I could be, who I'm failing to be? Not only what I look like externally, but what's happening inside of me internally. It's the most refreshing thing in the world. But, two conditions. I need that the person who's judging me, number one, should really know me. Shouldn't just be somebody who saw me on Zoom, or saw me on YouTube, (laughs) or saw an article of mine and is judgmental of me. I want somebody who knows me. Knows everything about me. My nature and my nurture. My weaknesses and my strengths. My struggles and my dilemmas my ups and my downs, my virtues and my vices, my struggles and my pain, all of my experiences. I don't want somebody to judge me superficially. Nobody wants that. That's why we're allergic to judgmentalism, because all judgmentalism is superficiality by definition. I want somebody who knows me, you know what really, really is going on inside of me, number one. Number two, I want to be judged by somebody who loves me, infinitely and unconditionally. Not somebody who's judging me because they have an axe to grind, because they want to be vengeful, because they want to put me down, because they have an axe to grind, or because they're jealous, or because they get pleasure somehow from judging me, makes them feel better, it elevates them. Of course I don't want that. That's why we're allergic to judgmentalism. But what if there's someone who loves me maybe more than I love myself, and somebody who believes in me more than I believe in myself, and somebody who knows me better than I know myself, ah, please judge me, please judge me. I'm going to tell you a most beautiful story, and I heard it from the person himself, and I want to tell you, you know, I share a lot of stories, some of you have heard a lot of my stories, but from all the stories, this one made a very, very deep impression on me, and you'll see why. It was a number of years ago, I think the year was 2000, 2007, 2007, maybe 2008. I traveled to Morristown, New Jersey, to a wedding of a first cousin of mine that was in the Rabbinical College of America Auditorium in Morristown, New Jersey. Suburbia, beautiful little town, a little shtetla. And I'm sitting at the Kabbalah Sponim with the Masada Kedushin, the Rav, who's officiating at the wedding. His name was Harav Shalomberg Gordon. Some of you know, knew his son very well, Rabbi Josh Gordon, Rabbi Yeshua Binyamin Gordon, who lived in Encino and passed away a number of years ago, the director of Chabad of the Valley for many years. He was a very special man. And uh, his father, says his father, Rabbi Shalomberg Gordon, Oliver Shalom, he was a rabbi of many, many years in Newark, New Jersey. And after the community in Newark fell apart, the riots of the 60s, they moved to another city in New Jersey. And Rabbi Shalomberg Gordon was a wise man. He was a Talmud Chachem. He had a big heart. He had a big neshama. He was a Yerei Shammai. And I was sitting near him. I could see that he's weak. I found out later that he was suffering from cancer. And he passed away a short time later. But I could see he was weak. And we're sitting at the Kabbalah's Ponim, you know, at the Tish, before the Chuppah, before the Badeke. And it was just me and him. I remember we were sitting against each other at a table. 
And I seized the moment, I seized the opportunity. And I said, Rabbi Gordon, you have been in Rabbonus for 60 years, 50 years, a half a century. I want you, I want to ask you a question. Share with me. Share with me what you learned about spiritual leadership and relationships and communications and leading communities and teaching Jews and inspiring Jews over the last 50 years. That's what I asked him. And he looked me in the eyes and he said, Rabbi Yisif Yitzchak, I'm going to share with you a story and an experience that happened right in the beginning. It shaped my life. It shaped my career. It shaped every single day of my work in the rabbinate and in chinuch, in education. And he said, I went out to become a rabbi. I was a very young man, 1948, 1949. Now those of you who remember those years, it's a little before my times, but everybody knows that American Jewry was in a very different place. Yiddishkeit in many places was almost non-existent. Orthodox Judaism was considered something of the past. I once read an article in New York Magazine. Somebody, my father I think, showed me an article, New York Magazine, 1953 or 54. And there was a prediction there. Listen to the prediction. In 50 years from now, Yiddish culture will be alive and well. Jewish religion will be completely dead. Yiddish culture, Shalom Aleichem, Mendele Moichesvarim, Yiddish theater, Yiddish literature, workmen's circle, Yiddish schools, that will flourish. But the Jewish religion, it's dying. 50, 60 years later, sadly, Yiddish culture, the Yiddish language, besides by the Chassidim, the Chassidim, and some very yeshiva shagais, it's been, it's become very weak. But Yiddishkeit experienced a renaissance. There were cities in America then that were absolutely spiritual barren deserts. Those of you from the old Los Angeles know, compare Los Angeles of 2020 to Los Angeles 1948. It was a completely different world. And even New Jersey, which was not far from New York, so this was a shul, Rabbi Gordon said, I came to the shul, but it was so shvach. It was very hard to find people who kept Shabbos, who kept kashrus. Very few people sent their children to Jewish schools. It was an Eretz Tziyah Ayev B'li Moyim. Over the next few decades, the miracle of Renaissance began and it continues. But don't take it for granted. My mother, may she be well, told me that when she was dating my father in 1950, 1955, she was dating my father. So they went to Manhattan. And my father was a yeshiva bacher and a budding journalist, but he had a little beard, very nice, handsome little beard. For a Jew to have a beard in 1955 in America was unheard of. And my mother told me she was walking with my father in the streets of Manhattan and people stopped and pointed to him. It was like a UFO who came from a different planet. Just to describe how things today we take for granted were unheard of. It was just unheard of. So Rabbi Gordon went to this shul. It was an Orthodox shul. But he saw that it was a disaster. From the president all the way down. The, just the basics of Yiddishkeit were missing. So what did he do? <laughs> he got up at the sermon and he did what a Rav is supposed to do. It's called... Tell people not what they want to hear, but what they need to hear. 
right? You could tell people what they want to hear, you tell people what they need to hear. And what happened? They got upset at him. The president told them, if you continue this way, you won't have a future here. And he had a dilemma, what am I supposed to do? So what did he do? He went to visit one of the great luminaries of the generation, the previous sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, of blessed memory, known as the Rebbe Rayatz. He came from Russia, he escaped to Poland from Stalinist, communist, Yevsekcia purgatory. Poland, he moved to Warsaw, Tvotsk, and then he escaped Nazi-occupied Poland, and he came 1940 to the United States of America, he moved to Brooklyn, he passed away 1950. He was the sixth Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson. He was an incredible, incredible human being. He stood one alone against Joseph Stalin and, and Lenin and the, 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 the communists. What he did in Russia was something out of this world. He came to America, a broken man, paralyzed, lost obviously much of his family and community either to Stalin's gulags or to Hitler's crematoriums. But he came here, he established himself in Brooklyn. And Rabbi Gordon told me, in 1949, I went in to the Rebbe Rayatz. It was the last year of the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe's life. And I poured out my heart. And I said, Rebbe, I have a serious problem. What do I do? You know, I'm doomed if I speak and I'm doomed if I don't speak. If I tell them the truth, if I give them Musr, if I tell them this is not the way to live and educate your children, they're going to throw me out of shul. So what should I do? I should flatter them. I should just give them compliments. I'm not doing my job. Then I'm just selling my soul. I'm selling myself out. I'm selling myself short. What am I supposed to do? If I say the truth, it won't work. If I don't say the truth, I'm not doing my job. I'm betraying my position. I'm betraying my achrayis. I'm betraying my shlichus. Good question. 1949, Newark, New Jersey, Vos Titman. I'll never forget this. He looks at me, says Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, the Rebbe Rayat looked at me, looked me in my eyes, and he asked me a question that was so strange, it was so perplexing. He says to me, Rabbi Shalom Ber, du bist amol given in Auschwitz? You were ever in Auschwitz? I assume most of you know what a Schwitz is, but a Schwitz is a sauna. Now in those days, schwitzes by Jews were very popular, extremely popular. Even today, with Corona, it's weaker, but here where I live, a schwitz is still pretty popular in Monsi. So he says, yeah. So the Rebbe tells him, describe to me what happens in a schwitz. This was very strange. The Lubavitcher Rebbe is asking a young man, a student, he was a student of the yeshiva, and then he got married. What does that have to describe him, Ashwitz? What does it have to do with this question? He's asking about how to lead his shul, how to mentor his community. But the Rebbe asks, so he starts saying, people go into a room, right? They remove their clothes. It's very, very hot, burning hot. And the heat rises, and there's benches, and people sit, and then they go higher and higher. And they love it. They sit, and they quell and they sleep, and they shmuas, and they argue politics. Those days it was uh, Truman. <laughs> Those days it was Truman and uh, Ben-Gurion, you know, 1948, 40, 49. Harry S. Truman from the haberdashery store with Eddie Jacobson, who is not my Zayda, but I, I carry the name proudly, Eddie Jacobson. 
to whom uh, the Jewish world, especially Israel, owes a lot. And uh, that's what Jews do. You know, today they do semichkas, they eat sunflower seeds. And the Rebbe says, and what, what else happens? What else happens there? So he says at some point when it's really hot, they had a beder. A beder was like the gabai, you know, the gabai in the Schwitz, And he had a broom. I don't know if you know a Schwitz broom, a sauna broom. And you would ask him to give you some malchus, to give you some lashes on your back with this broom. And he would give you, and the Rebbe says, and what do you do? He says, most people say more, 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 more. So the Rebbe smiles and he says, now I want to ask you a question. Imagine if you're walking in the street and somebody comes with a broom and starts knocking you over your back, starts knocking you over your back. Boom, boom, boom. What do you do? So he says, well, either you run away or you punch him in the face or you call the police. So the Rebbe says, so why is it that in the Schwitz, when he strikes you, not only don't you fight back, you ask him for more, more, more. What's the difference? So he told me, he said, now I was smart enough to be quiet. And the Rebbe said, because if somebody goes over to you in the street with a broom and starts knocking you over your head or over your back, you're going to get furious, you'll either run away or attack him, fight or flight, or call 911. He says, over there, they don't just start hitting you with a broom. And I have to say this in Yiddish, and then I'll translate he says, Frier Breakman Amarain in Ashwitz. Mevarem Temon. Mahiptemuf. Und enoch ve mehipton schmeisen. Zokter mer, mer, mer. You don't just strike him with a broom over his head. You bring him into a hot sauna, a steam room. You elevate him and you warm him up. You make him hot, passionate, warm. And you elevate them because they would go from bench to bench, elevating themselves to the higher platform. And then you take out the broom. And then you start striking him. And you know what his response is? More, more, more. He looked at him and he said, Reb Shalom Ber, when you get up to speak in shul, don't just take out a broom and start striking people. Freer daf on varamen un ufheben. First you have to warm them up and you have to lift them up. And then, and then, when you take out a broom and you start hitting, you know what they're going to say? Meh, meh, meh. Come on, don't stop. More, more, more. He said, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, Rabbi Y.Y., I left the Rebbe's room. I went back to my community. This was the most powerful, wise, deep, sacred, important piece of advice that any person could have given me in my life. It guided every communication, every act, every speech, every sheer, every sermon, all interactions, my mentorship over the next 50 years. Hundreds and hundreds of Bali Truva, hundreds of kids who were sent to yeshiva, including the editor-in-chief of Art Scroll, I think one of Reb Shalom Berg Gordon's early students. So we have Art Scroll to thank for that too. And he said, this message, get up in shul, but don't just speak. You don't just get up and tell people, oh, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you're horrible, you're a lost case. No, 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 no. You're going to lose everybody. Transform the oasis into a sauna 
warm people up and elevate them. Light a fire in their souls. Set their hearts on fire. Warm them up. Give them passion. Give them truth. Give them an neshama. Give them a soul. And then elevate them. Expand their horizons. Show them a larger vision. Let them see life in a grander way, in a deeper way, in a more authentic way. Let them see themselves in a grander way. Elevate them, sublimate them. And then start speaking the truth. And you know what they're going to tell you? More, more, more. People want to grow. People want to change. People don't want to remain locked up. People don't want to remain in their psychological and emotional shackles. People want to believe that they have choices. If I could quote Isaac Basheva Zinger, who cynically said, we have to believe that we have free choice. We got no choice. People want to change. People want to go to a deeper place. Who wants to stay in prison? We want to be emancipated. We want to set ourselves free. I don't want to live with my insecurities and my fears and my traumas. I don't want to come from a restricted place. But I'm scared. I'm scared. Nitna Mitzrayma. Stockholm syndrome. Battered woman syndrome. Familiar evil is more comforting than the unfamiliar. Take me back to Egypt. Take me back to Mitzrayim. You know why? At least I know. I know that there's breakfast, lunch, and supper. I remember the sushi that we had in Egypt for free. Don't take me to a promised land that I never saw, I never know, knew, never know, never saw, never heard of. Eretz Echelis Yeshvei. I want to rather go to the familiar. We're afraid. I'm afraid. You're judging me. You're putting me down. You're not going to love me. I'm going to lose my identity, attachment issues I have. But if I can create a schwitz for you, ah. Rabbi Yosha Ber Soloveitchik, the great Rabbi J.B. Soloveitchik, the Rosh Yeshiva of Rabbi Yitzhak Al-Khanan, Rav of Boston, son of Rabbi Moshe Soloveitchik, grandson of Rabbi Chaim Soloveitchik, Rabbi Chaim Brisker. You know where I saw this? I saw this, some of you remember, there was a little magazine, Hapardis. Hapardis was published by Reb Simcha Elbeck. Reb Tzvika, you remember Hapardis. Reb Simcha Elbeck published Hapardis. So in 19, I saw an edition from 1943. Reb Moshe Soloveitchik, the son of Reb Chaim, passed away, Tovshin Beis, 1942. He was Rosh Hashiva in Rabbi and he was succeeded, it was a little a bit of a struggle, but that's not for now, he was succeeded by his son, Rabbi Yosheh Ber Soloveitchik, Hagar Rabbi Yosef Doiv Halevi, who was named after his Eltazade, the Beis Halevi. The first Chag HaSmiche was the middle of the Holocaust. And he was ordaining rabbis in America, Yeshiva University. And he gave a speech then. And a segment of it was published in Hapardis, and I saw it many years later. And he said this, the Gemara says in Meseches Yuma, I think it's Lametes or Mem, Tonu Rabbonon, Shimon HaTzadik, who we know was from the last of the Anshei Knesset Sagdoyle, who came back from Golis Bavel and revitalized the Jewish community, the beginning of Bayesheni, he served as a Kayin Gadol, as a high priest for 40 years. And the Gemara says that one year, he came out, Yom Kippur, from the Kodesh HaKadoshim. And he told the people, he told his students, that this year, I'm going to die. Why? He said, every year when I go into the Kodesh HaKadoshim, 
I saw an old man who was Atuf and Lavosh Levenim. He was dressed and bedecked in white. He would come in with me. He would come out with me. But this year, I saw this old man bedecked in black, in dark, bleak garments. I'm not going to make it. The Gemara says, indeed, Sukkot passed, Shemanat Sadik fell ill, and a week later, he returned his soul to its maker. Asked what does this mean? He went into Kodesh HaKadoshim and he saw somebody in white and black. There was nobody there. Yerushalmi says, even Malachi Asharis, it says, Pnei Odom, they're called Pnei Odom, they also were not there. In the Heichel and Kodesh HaKadoshim, who was there? And he gave a very powerful insight. He said, Shimonat Sadik was the one who saw Alexander the Great conquer the world. He saw Hellenistic culture, Greek culture, beginning to dominate the Middle East. And he saw the beginning of the end of Jewish faith because most Jews became Messiavnim, they became Hellenists. We know that the Hashemanoi war was not just against the Syrian Greeks, it was against the Jews. Most of them became Hellenists. Very few remained loyal to Torah. And if the Hashemanoim would have been defeated, there would be no vestige of Jews or Judaism left. Shimon HaTzadik lived many generations before Hanukkah. A few generations before. He was in the time of Alexander the Great. But he saw it coming. He saw it coming. And therefore, there was a pessimism. And the question was, will I be the last? Will I be the last Kohen Gadol? But then, on Yom Kippur, he went into Kodesh HaKadoshim. Not just physically, spiritually. He went into the Kodesh HaKadoshim of space. And he went into the Kodesh HaKadoshim of the Neshama. And there he saw Knesset Yisrael, Ruach Yisrael Savi. He saw the ancient soul of the Jewish people white. He saw the brightness of the Jew. He saw the Lichtikeit from Ayyidosh Neshama. And he came out with optimism, with a renewed sense of hope and confidence in the bright future of the Jewish people, said Rabbi Yoshebeir. But this year, Shimon HaTzadik says, I came in, and you know what I saw? I saw that the ancient Jewish soul was dark. I saw blackness, I saw bleakness. I saw the Shechorani, I didn't see the Nava. I saw Shechorani, I didn't see Nava, and Shimon HaTzadik said, I know that I will not continue living here on this earth. You know why? Said Rabbi Salavechik, because you can't be a Kohen Gadol for the Jewish people if you do not see the brightness, the luminescence, the lichtekeit, the promise, the potentiality of Knesset Yisrael. You can't be a Jewish leader. You can't be a Rosh Yeshiva, a Mashgiach, a Rebbe, a Mashpia, a teacher, a Rav, a Mora, a Mechaneches, a Mechanech, a Tati, a Mami, a Zaidi, a Bobby, a Rebbe. You can't be a mentor, you can't be a leader, a man or woman of influence among the Jewish people if you do not look at your children and you do not look at your community and you do not look at your grandchildren and you do not look at your pupils and you do not see their whiteness, their beauty, their potentiality, their brightness, their holiness, their pristine purity, and how much inner divinity and wholesomeness and sacredness lay embedded in their soul. 
If my only message to my kids and my class and my community is, eh, eh, let me tell you how it used to be, the good old days. Today, a bunch of lazy, good-for-nothings addicted to your Zooms and your iPods and your iPads and your, and your, your, your laptops and your computers and your iPhones. We have our challenges. Trust me, I know. We have our problems. And this obsession with technology is something that we all have to deal with sooner or later. And we can't be in denial because denial is a river in Egypt. But you always have to be able to see the inner wholesomeness. That You have to be able to see the Yorutz Avdecha Kemoy Ayol Nafshi Choylas Avasecha Ona Kel Norefonala Higolano Frois Chavivialai. You have to be able to see the yearning of the Neshama. You have to be able to see the beauty in people, the potential in people. You have to be able to believe in them so that they can believe in themselves. Says Rabbi Soloveitchik, you can't be a Koyan Godel if all you see is blackness and darkness. If you look at a generation and you say, eh, they're doomed, they're hopeless, Yeridus Hadoiris, forget it, it's all over, there's nobody to talk to. He says, you can't be a Kayin Godel, you gotta go to heaven. If you wanna be a Kayin Godel, if you wanna be a high priest among the Jewish people, you wanna be a Mechanech, you wanna be a pedagogue, you wanna be a mentor on any level, and every one of us is a leader, every one of us is an educator, every one of us has influence over one, two, three, five, ten, twenty people within our family, our loved ones, our community, and today, you can have an impact on the whole world. And if you don't believe me, ask the coronavirus. A little tiny particle the size of 125 nanometers changed the whole world. Don't tell me that people can't change the world. The Rambam wrote in Hilchus Truva from Kedushan Memtes, everything is a scale. One mitzvah, you can change a whole world. And we say, yeah, it's delusional. Look at the coronavirus. You know how large the coronavirus is? You can fit 100 million viral particles on a pinhead. 100 million. If the coronavirus was the size of me, you could fit, <laughs> you could fit probably 3.3.6 billion on a pencil eraser. And one of these changed the world. If you do not see the positive, the potential in people, you can't be a leader. And Rabbi Soloveitchik said this to the rabbis. He says, the Jewish world is burning. All we can see now is smoke and darkness and bleakness. But if we want to be spiritual leaders, we have to be able to believe in Netzach Yisrael. We have to be able to believe in Nishmas Yisrael. We have to believe, be able to believe Ben Kachu, Ben Kachatem Kriyim Bonim. We have to be able to believe in the ability of transformation, of renewal, of rebirth, of renaissance, of Yeda Kopol Kiatapialtoi. Back to our Schwitz, sitting at that wedding in 2008. Rabbi Gordon looked at me and he says, I did not have to hear anything else in life. That was enough to carry me for the next half a century. Those words. So I come back to you and I say, do you want to be judged or don't you want to be judged? And I say to you, yes, if I feel that you don't know me or you don't care for me, of course I don't want you to judge me. I'm going to run away to China physically, well, not now, physically or emotionally, I'm going to run. I don't want to be with you. But what if you could create a schwitz? What if I can feel the warmth? What if I can feel the love? What if I can be warmed and elevated and inspired? And then you take out a broom. You know what I'm going to tell you? More, 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 more. And that's what you're going to say too. More, more, more. 
Rosh Hashanah is Yom Adin, but who's judging you? Who's judging you? You know who's judging you? Judging you is someone who knows everything about you. Not somebody who's apathetic to you. Ki hu yada yitzreinu, he knows every struggle. He knows your Yetzirah through and through. He knows your weaknesses. He knows everything you have been through. And heaven knows what you have been through. Heaven knows everything you have been through from the day you took your first breath. The Rebbeinu Shalaylam knows every challenge, all adversity that you faced. He knows the abuse you encountered. He knows what you went through as a youngster, or as a teenager, or as a young married person. He knows everything that you went through. He knows the skeletons, he knows the ghosts, he knows the insecurities. Hashem is not sitting on a throne of judgment like an objective chas tyrant saying, oh, let's judge these people. He's in you. You are a chelik elekamimal. He knows you. Like the Rambam says, he knows you because he knows himself, because you're part of him. I'm quoting the Rambam and Hilchis Yisaydiyatayr and Hilchis Tshuva. This is not judgment from far, judgment that scrutinizes you, irrelevant of who you are. This is the most beautiful judgment in the world. Somebody who knows everything, all my fears, all my insecurities, and somebody who judges me from that place. And number two, Hashem loves you infinitely. It says in Zayar Shmois, if you would know how much He loves you, you would run after Him faster than a lioness runs after her prey. The Baal Shem Tev says that Hashem loves every Jew more than a father and a mother love an only child who was born at a time when they didn't think they can have children. Even that doesn't come close to the love of Hashem to the Jewish people. Avas oila ma'aftanu Hashem alakeinu. Chem hafti eschem amr Hashem. Can you feel it? Can you open yourself up to it? Frankly, many of us don't know what it means to feel love. Did you ever really feel, what does it mean to be loved? And I want to say to you, my dearest brothers and sisters, and without judgment, talking about judgment, if you never felt and experienced what it means to be loved, you may never be able to experience even when somebody is giving you that love. I know spouses who are so loving, but the other spouse can't accept it. Because since they never felt it, they can't detect it as love. They see it as manipulation, as control, or as the person completely being fooled, or just trying to flatter them and exaggerate. They really don't get it. Sometimes I'm so traumatized, or I suffered from such poor attachment as a child, that I don't trust it. When I get older, I don't trust it. I run away. It's too painful for me. It's too suspicious for me. I'm afraid I'm going to be hurt and backstabbed. So therefore I reject you. So Hashem could love you infinitely, but you may never feel it. David HaMelech says, My father and mother sometimes abandon me, but Hashem takes me in. He had to discover the love as an adult. It's not easy. Can you feel it? Can you breathe it? When you say, We mentioned the term love, Seven times in the bracha before Krishna, seven times, you could count. And we open Avas Oilam or Avarabah, Taisvis Brachas Yudbeis, Ashken Asvar, the Goinim, and we end it, Haboycham Am Yisrael Ba'ava. You have to be able to open yourself up to His infinite love to you. So who's judging you? Someone who's crazy about you, somebody who loves you, somebody who knows everything about you.
And what's this judgment about? What is it about? Why is he judging me? He's judging me because he wants you and I to be able to have a year in which we could ultimately maximize our potentials and fulfill our mission in this world. Read the We see it as a very depressing tefillah because it's intense. But there's also an unbelievable message. Hashem says, I want you to know that whatever happens to you in the next year, don't blame anybody else. It's coming from me. Everything, no one else is deciding it. It's coming from me, me, the one who loves you infinitely, the one who's crazy about you, the one who's attached to you, the one who's part of you and forever one with you, the one whose relationship with you is non-negotiable and absolute and eternal and timeless and unconditional. I'm the one who decides what's going to happen to you the next year. I'm judging you today looking at your truth to decide together what is the best situation and the best circumstances for you to be able to shine over the next year and live life to the fullest emotionally, physically, spiritually, psychologically, in this world and in the next world. And he tells us about it. you know why? Because he says, I want you to be part of the process. Let's judge each other together. I don't only want to judge you as an objective being, an infinite being who knows you. I want to hear what you have to say. Let's work this out together. Let's talk about it. When we daven on Rosh Hashanah, when we talk to Hashem on Rosh Hashanah, what are we really doing? We're really examining ourselves. We're explaining who we are. There is a partnership here. I'm judging me. Hashem is judging me. We are scrutinizing ourselves together so that together, this decision, this destiny can be created for a new year. A year of, of, of profundity. If you want to say it in different words, when Hashem judges you on Rosh Hashanah, He's not really judging you. He's judging Himself. He's judging the way He's going to live the next year through you. Because each and every person is a chelik elikamimah. You are a nitzutz of Ein Seif, as Darizal says. You are a manifestation of Hashem in this world. You are a ray of infinity. You are a fragment of the Rebbeinu Shalalem. You are a piece of heaven. You are an ambassador. Shluchai shaladam kemoisi, as the Gemara says in Kedushin. You are an ambassador of Hashem in this world. You are a shliach. A shliach is... Like the Meshalayach, Rabbi Yosef Engel and Lekach Tev has his three levels of shluchim. The shliach is the one who represents the one who sent him. You are a manifestation of Hashem. You're a shutaf Lakadosh Baruch Hu. You are a co-creator. So Hashem is judging what type of year He is going to live. And He is going to experience through you in this world. And you do it together. It's intense. It's awesome. But don't look at it as something that should cause you distance and anxiety and dread and this inner terror and sense of alienation. I want to run away from this. Embrace it as one of the greatest great days of the year. That's really what Yira means. What does Yira mean? What does Yiras Hashem mean? Yiras Hashem is not fear of punishment. The Maharal says, that's fear of me. That's not fear of God. That's fear that I'm going to get hurt. Yiris Hashem means, as the Balatanya says, you're afraid to ruin such a beautiful relationship. You're afraid to ruin such a love. You know when you have an incredible marriage in the world? You're afraid to betray your spouse, not because she's going to find out. 
Not because she's going to punish you, even if she doesn't find out. You're afraid to ruin such an amazing, amazing connection. Yiris Hashem means when you realize the infinity, the love, I don't want to ruin it. It's too good. It's too good to be true. I'm afraid to ruin it. Let me put it a little differently. You know what real Yiris Hashem is? When you realize how much God loves you, it's very scary. You know, to realize that somebody loves you so much is scary. It's much easier if I believe nobody loves me. There's no expectations. Nobody really cares. If I realize that you are invested, heart and soul in me, that you believe in me more than I believe in myself, that you love me to pieces, you love me infinitely, that's demanding from me. What do we say in davening every morning? Anachnu amcha bnei v'risecha bnei avramay havcha. When I know that you're crazy about me, it creates a chalois of his chayvos. There's a demand now, there's an expectation. I feel it triggers something very serious. How can I be apathetic? How can I spit you in the face? How can I betray you? How can I turn on you? How can I backstab you? How can you do this to your spouse? How can you do this to your best friend? How can you do this to somebody who is so vulnerable because of you? How could you? When you realize that somebody can love you so much, it's scary. When I realize me, I'm so lovable, me? I'm just a little random mutation, an infinitesimal blimp on the surface of eternity. Me? What's so lovable about me? <laughs> What's so lovable? When you realize Hashem is so crazy, is so in love with me, that's scary, that's awesome, that's awe-inspiring. That's the year of Rosh Hashanah. That's the year, that's the awe, the reverence, the awesomeness of this time of the year, of the hiskarvos, of the closeness, of the intimacy, of this powerful, powerful, incredible, incredible relationship. Friends, we say every day, a few times a day, and all the living, all the living, will be thankful to you forever. So everybody knows the Beis Yosef says that Chayim is an acronym of four words. Choyla, Yam, Yisurim, Midbar. Those are the four, Arbaat Tzrichim Lahaydas. The four people who go through challenges in life that have to say Hagaymal and bring a carbon to somebody who's been gravely ill and recovers. Somebody who travels through the ocean and emerges. Somebody who has been in prison and emancipated. And somebody who travels through the desert, the wilderness and emerges unscathed and their life is saved and given to them, we thank. And the question is asked, why do you put this into the word Chayim? Chayim means life. These are all people whose lives were almost taken from them. They came so close to death. Why are they intimated and alluded to in the word Chayim when their experience was the antithesis of Chayim? Thank God they were rescued at the end. And one of the deep answers for this, my friends, is sometimes I have to be able to face death 
in order to be able to embrace life. Because it's so easy to live life from a superficial place. I climb the ladder of success and I become content with validation. People are impressed with me. They're impressed with my money, my career, my success, my social status. And we live and operate on a very external level. But when somebody went through and they fell over the first mountain into the abyss, then from the valley, from the abyss, they can start climbing a second mountain. And then they start living. They start appreciating life in a different way. Life is not anymore about people validating me, but life is really, what is my real calling? It's not about me. It's not about what I need. It's what I'm needed for. I ask not what everybody can do for me, what God can do for me, what the Jewish people can do for me, what my community can do for me, what my family can do for me. I start asking, what can I do for the Rebbeinah Shalom? What can I do for the Jewish people? What can I do for the world? What can I do for Eretz Yisrael? What can I do for my brothers and sisters? It's a very different question. And then I start living. And I feel that in so many ways, we are now at that moment of a Chalachayim Yeduchasela. The world experienced lockdown. Everybody was affected in one way or another, some more seriously than others. But every single person was affected. Don't let a crisis pass without sucking the marrow out of the crisis and revealing its opportunity. What did Yaakov tell the angel of Esau? I'm not just letting you leave after a night of struggle. No. You don't face an adversary who tried to kill you and just say, bye-bye, leave. I will not send you away, Kiyan Beirach Tani, as long as I do not come out from this entanglement and from this experience more wise and more deep and more blessed and more authentic and more empowered and more divine and more focused and more balanced and more charged. Those who endure the Chayla Yam Yisurim B'Midbar, it's a different life. The world was on lockdown. A chesh ben happened. And my dear friends, we say goodbye to a very loaded year. Don't just pray to God that we get rid of this pandemic, Bekar of Mamish, and everything goes back to normal. I don't want to go back to normal. You don't want to go back to normal. I want to go back to a new world. I want to come back to a much deeper life. I want to come back to a deeper marriage. I want to come back to a deeper relationship with my children. I want to come back to a deeper relationship with my students, with my grandchildren. I want to come back to a deeper relationship with myself. And I want to come up back to the deepest relationship with my God, with my Father in Heaven. I don't just want to come back to a regular world and I can travel and I can go back and everything is good and we get rid of the masks and all is good. Halavai, amen, everybody should be healthy, it should be an amazing year. Let's seize these moments, let's seize this opportunity to bring out the best in us. Allow yourself to become the best version of yourself in times of crisis and times of difficulties. Some people, you see the worst in them comes out, and others, the best in them comes out. This is a time to find the best in you, to undig and excavate your deepest resources, to really prioritize, to really discover who you are, and to see that beautiful whiteness that Shimon Atzadik saw in the Kodesh HaKadoshim, to be able to live with it, to be able to accentuate it, to be able to embrace it. 
and to be able to identify with it and share it with others. My dearest, dearest friends, I want to conclude these words or this Truva evening with a little experience with a little experience that I just had yesterday. It was very, very moving for me. Right before Pesach, I got a call from a young woman. She's a mother of young children. She lives in the five towns in New York. Her name is Leah. And she tells me, my husband, he's in his 30s, a young man. He was diagnosed with COVID-19. He had a hard time breathing. They took him to the hospital, NYU, NYU. Those are the early days when there was a lot of chaos. And I've been speaking to him on the phone every day. They didn't let me come. I've been speaking to him on the phone. His breathing is becoming more difficult and more difficult. His health is deteriorating. He can't breathe anymore. And he just called me. And he said, I can't. I can't fight any longer. It's too tough. It's too much of a struggle. I can't. And she calls me. And she pleads with me. She says, my husband respects you. And he cherishes you and he listens to you. Would you be able to record immediately a video that I could send to the nurse at his bedside to show him and maybe somehow you could be mechazek him and inspire him that he shouldn't he shouldn't stop fighting. He shouldn't just surrender. And I listened to her words. I actually, it was, I think, Erev Pesach, it was very hectic. But I told my wife, whatever I was doing there, I have to stop. This is very, very important. And I went out to my porch and I gathered my thoughts. What do you tell this person? And I put on the video, you know, the iPhone, everybody today makes videos of themselves 24 hours a day, and you send it out as a WhatsApp, and and I sit down and I, and I say, Hashem speak through me. And I say to this young man whose name is Yudi Dukes, Yudi Dukes, and I say, Yudi, I just got a call from my wife, I just want to tell you, we're cheering for you, we're behind you, don't stop breathing. You have an amazing wife and little chkindalach who are waiting for you to come home. They can't wait till you come home. And then I said, you know, I never understood. It says, Koyla neshama talal yutke. So it says, Kol neshimo neshima. Every breath deserves halal. Every breath, neshimo neshima. But the Chachme HaKabbalah said, it's much deeper than that. Every neshima that we make, is essentially a reflection of Hashem's neshima. Vayipach, ba'ap of neshmas Hashem blows life into the universe and into the human every single moment. Every single moment. The Mekabalim say, why do we blow shayf on Rosh Hashanah? Because on Rosh Hashanah, the first Rosh Hashanah, Vayipach, ba'ap of neshmas the Rebbeinu Shalaylam blew, he exhaled his inner breath, the Hevel Elyon, and that became the Chius of Adam Arishin and the Chius of Chava. And every Rosh Hashanah, again, Zehayom Tchilas Masanche, he blows new life into creation. And every breath of ours is just a channel of Hashem's breath. So I said, Yudi, I want you to meditate that every breath you're taking 
is literally a channel for the divine breath into the world. And I want you to know that it's hard for you to breathe. But every time you break through that resistance and you allow a breath to come out, the whole world can now breathe easier. You're not just exhaling your own breath. You're empowering the whole world to be able to breathe. So thank you and don't stop breathing. I sent over the video. She thanked me profusely. Of course, I didn't hear from him because shortly after he went into the coma, they put him on all the machines, ventilators, respirators, and he was almost four months without consciousness. I think if I'm not mistaken, the longest or one of the longest COVID-19 patients to remain in the hospital for more than four months. Strokes, lungs collapsed, heart conditions. It seemed very, very bleak. Very bleak. Yesterday I get a call from him. Yesterday Yudi Dukes calls me. He calls me. And I hear his voice. I knew him from before. It's a very different voice. Every word came out with, with tremendous strain. And he says to me, I'm calling. I just wanted to say thank you for those meaningful words that you said during his most serious struggle. When he went in afterwards, he lost consciousness and everybody thought he's gone. Although there was another level of consciousness that he emerged from. And he expressed how grateful he is, the gratitude for it, and how much it was mechazakim, and how much, how much it inspired him, and how much it empowered him. And he was literally a miracle of Tchiyas HaMesim. When I heard his voice, it was literally like a voice, you'll forgive me, like a voice from the dead. It was very hard to believe that this is a real person because they really gave up, but there was a ness. He emerged. And with a lot of sayata deshmaya and a tremendous efforts of a very good medical staff and a lot of people who helped in many different ways. And at that moment I realized, I realized the power that each and every single one of us has to be able to be ambassadors and conduits for love and light and hope and healing and wisdom and redemption. The worst thing you can do is underestimate your power. I come back to what I began with. You struggle with God, you'll figure it out. But don't ever doubt how much God believes in you and your ability to make a difference in your life and the lives of other people as long as you can redefine yourself from a victim into a shliach, into an ambassador of the Rebbeinu Shlelem, an ambassador of love, light, hope, healing, authenticity, wisdom, Torah, redemption, Avas Hashem, Avas HaTorah, Avas Yisrael. So I bless you, my dearest brothers and sisters. I send you all my love and blessings. May Hashem, the Rebbeinu Shalom, confer upon you and your loved ones a most amazing, awesome, healthy, prosperous, blessed year, Hashanah Toivum, Sukkah, with Brocha and Atzlocha, Adbali Dai, Harchavas Hadas, Menuchas HaNefesh, V'Haguf, may Hashem fulfill all of your heart's desires. May this be a year of true renewal and transformation, a year in which each and every one of us lives our lives to the fullest, a year in which we bring out our deepest potentials, and a year in which each and every one of us realizes the truth of how powerful and how potent and what a difference every one of us could make in bringing so much love, light, hope, healing to our world, to our brethren, to our communities, to our families, to ourselves. And may it be indeed a true year of ultimate geula individually and collectively. Thank you very, very much. Shana.
Tova, good night. Amen. Thank you, Rabbi Jacobson. Uh, phone is blowing up with people commenting throughout, and everyone is, is utterly moved. We thank you. Thank you, David, again for making this possible. This was, uh, if you're not getting ready for this, then something's wrong. This is really incredible. We'll see you next year when Yavna moves to Yerushalayim. Amen. I don't know. At that point, you may have some better ones, but maybe Mashiach himself. But I thank you for the for the honor. Good night, everybody. Thank you, Rabbi Einhorn. Thank you to the Rubens. Thank you for every to everybody joining us. For everybody. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.